Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious God, evermore, feed us with your word, evermore plant your word in us, and draw us near to yourself. For by your word you have already drawn near to us. Restore us and sustain us, and grant us to be faithful servants before you, to be good stewards of all that you have given to us, and as you have poured out your Son unto death for us, may we also be poured out before you, offering all of ourselves before you for the sake of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I'm not an expert gardener. If anyone saw the little garden I attempted to get going last year, you would heartily agree with me. If we had been in any way dependent upon that garden, um, I would not be a pastor here anymore because we would all be dead. Um, we would have died because everything in our garden died last year. Um, some mite or bug got in it and killed off all of our squash and it jumped over to our cucumbers and wiped them out. And then for whatever reason, our tomatoes just never did anything. Um, so I don't know what happened, but I'm not a very good gardener. I can't. I can barely get grass to grow in our yard. It lasts for about three months and then it just dies. So I very much am not a gardener and don't have a green thumb and don't quite understand some things like this. I don't understand how people who would have a piece of land rented out to them with the already going vineyard, everything is set up and all they have to do is just tend to it and take care of it, and invest time and effort in it, yes, but then give to the owner that which belongs to him. Because that's what this parable is about, giving to the owner what is his due, what he is owed. And the idea of the vineyard has a long history in the Old Testament, so when Jesus begins telling this story and says a man planted the vineyard, it's going to be one of those triggers into people's minds because these people are saturated with the scriptures to recognize he's telling a parable about Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called a vineyard. The Psalms refer to it that way, that God took a vine out of Egypt and planted it in the land, that it would grow, that he's planted a vineyard and built walls around it to protect it. Later on in Isaiah 5, he'll speak of having planted a vineyard, but it produced wild grapes, even though it was the choicest of vines and made to be a great vine. It only produced wild grapes. And so the owner will come in and tear down the wall and let the boars and the wild animals come in and trample this vine and destroy it because it is no good to the owner. Because it only produces wild grapes. It doesn't produce good fruit. One commentator, when they mentioned that particular passage in relation to this parable, referred to that fruit, those wild grapes, as being stink fruit. They were just no good for anything. And so we're confronted with this reality today as Jesus tells this parable to the people. What are we to make of it? How are we to respond to it? How are we to act when we hear Jesus accusing the Jewish leadership of not giving to God what is owed to him, what is rightfully his, because that's the context we're in right here. Jesus here has just entered into Jerusalem. 
At the end of chapter 19, he has his triumphal entry. He weeps over Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. And then he begins teaching, and the Pharisees and the scribes come, and they challenge his authority. They look at him and ask him, by what authority do you teach? And so he posed a question in return. By what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? Was he from heaven? Was it from heaven or was it from man? And they wouldn't answer. Because if they said from man, the people would rebel against them. But if they said that it was from heaven, then they would ask, why did you mistreat him if you understood where he was from? And so they refused to answer. And so Jesus said, well, then I'm not going to answer your question. So he's there in the midst of the people with the Pharisees and the scribes right there next to him. They are challenging his authority. And so he tells this parable of the wicked tenants. And he began to tell the people this parable, this people including all of the scribes and the Pharisees, the leadership amongst the people that are right there. The people who are taking upon themselves the authority to teach and to train and to educate the people in the ways of Scripture and the ways of God. They're here to hear this parable. And the first thing this parable points out is that there is something owed to the owner. That it's about giving what is owed. There in verse 9, he says, A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. They had an agreement together, this owner and the tenants. The owner invested his time and his money and his efforts in creating this vineyard. Over in the Gospel of Matthew, it speaks of there even being a place where the grapes could be piled up and crushed and turned into wine, that this was a fully functioning vineyard to produce wine for the people, to produce wine for the owner. And he made an agreement with a group of other people, the tenants who would take care of this while he was out of the way. This was not an unfamiliar situation for Israel. There were lots of tenant farmers who leased their land from another, and they would give the fruits of that land to the owner because that was the expectation that if you lease the land, then you give what is owed to the owner. And after a long while, the owner sends a servant to collect some of the fruit, to collect that which is owed, to collect the rent. But they sent him away empty-handed, and again he sent another. And they beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Right there in verses 9 through 12, we get a compressed history of Israel. We get the ultimate picture of what Israel was and how they treated the prophets of God. I find it interesting that as he sends each servant, how the people respond gets worse. On the one hand, the first one, they, they beat him and send him away. But then the second servant, they abuse him. They treat him shamefully and send him away. And the third, they also wounded. There's an escalation of response from the tenants toward these servants that as they keep coming, they keep responding more and more wickedly, more and more violently toward the one that the servant, that the owner sends in his place. He sends a representative and they reject the representative, refusing to give the rent that is owed. And this is absolutely a picture of Israel for Israel herself were tenants on the land. The land did not belong to them, it belonged to the Lord. In Leviticus 25, the Lord says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. 
Each family, each tribe was given a parcel of land within the Holy Land, within that nation, within that tract there. And it was to remain with that tribe, and each clan and each family had their piece of the land, and it was to remain within that family forever. If hard times came up, individuals could sell off a little portion of their land for a while in order to get the money back, in order to earn the money that they need to survive. But the person who bought it was not intended to keep it forever. They were not supposed to keep it forever. The one who sold it had rights to repurchase it. And in fact, that was the goal ultimately was for that person to buy it back. It's almost like they would mortgage the land temporarily in order to get a little bit of money to get them forward and then they would resave their money in order to retake that little parcel of land and return it back to the families. But if they were unable to do that, every 50 years there was to be a year of Jubilee where everything reset itself. All the debts were erased, all the land was returned to the rightful clans and rightful families so that they could return to doing what they were supposed to do, caring for the land, tending to it, raising their fruit, raising their vegetables, taking care of their farms, producing wheat and barley and all kinds of grains and caring for their animals. And out of that abundance that the Lord was giving to them, they were to give a portion of that to the temple, to give a tithe to it. And that was their rent, you could say. That as God had blessed them on this land and given it to them to use and to live off of, they were but sojourners because ultimately the land belonged to the Lord. He was the true owner and they were the tenants who were to take of the fruit that was produced from that land and give a portion of it to the Lord, to the temple. And that's what they would do. They would bring it to the temple and that was the idea. And Jesus sums up the, 15, the over 2,000 year history of Israel. 2,500 years of Israelite history here in just three verses with an owner who plants a vineyard and goes away and puts tenants in charge and sends servants to collect his rent, to collect what is due, what is owed. And the people, the tenants, treated these servants shamefully, though they were committed to the owner. They had made commitments to the owner, just as Israel had made commitments to the Lord at Mount Sinai. The Israelites were committed to the covenant. They had said, we will do what you have called us to do. They were circumcised in order to be part of the people of God. So whether they wanted to follow God or not, they were committed to him by default and called to give their allegiance to him in all that they did. But they didn't. They kept for themselves what they wanted. They didn't give of themselves to the Lord as they were called. They did not give their allegiance to the Lord, and so he would send prophet after prophet after prophet to confront them. Yahweh would confront his people through these prophets and call them back to the Lord, call them back to the covenant, call them back to giving to God what is owed to him in light of all of his great and glorious promises that he has given to them. But the people so often refuse, and they refuse so badly that eventually they were kicked out of the land. They were exiled. The owner did come and remove them. But this owner was graceful in this story and let them return. He brought them out of exile. He brought Israel back to the land and let them continue living on the land, producing harvest and crops, but still calling for what was owed to him. And that's where we pick up in verse 13. We pick up with the beloved but rejected son. 
The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? Shall I send my I shall send my son, my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. The owner sees that the people will not respond. The tenants will not respond to his servants, and so he says, I will send my own beloved son to go to these tenants and to demand and to call forth what is mine. I find it interesting here that this owner refers to his son as the beloved son. In the Gospel of Luke, this only occurs one other time. At the baptism of Jesus. Luke saves this word for this parable after the baptism. Matthew and Mark use the word beloved in the transfiguration. When the cloud came down and overshadowed everyone, the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. That's how Matthew and Mark recount the transfiguration and the words from the Father. But Luke says, This is my chosen one. It ultimately means the same thing, but I think it points to, G to Luke saving that little word, beloved. As he recounts Jesus' life, as he recounts his parables and his stories, and he saves it in order that it would just reverberate here in this parable. As the owner says, I will send my beloved. I will send my beloved son, my one and only son, to these tenants. And of course, that causes an echo all the way back throughout all of Scripture, back to Abraham and Isaac. As the Lord says to Abraham, get up and bring your beloved, bring your loved one, your loved son, and bring him to be sacrificed at Mount Moriah. When that word beloved occurs in Scripture, we can't help but have that echo back to Moses or to Abraham and Isaac and that sacrifice of Abraham stepping forward and being willing to give up his son because he trusts Yahweh. He trusts that Yahweh even can bring back the dead to life, that he can return the dead to the living. And so he is willing to follow through on what God calls him to do. And it becomes a picture that echoes into what God is going to do for his people, that what he is going to do for his creation, that he will give his own beloved son to the people. He will give his beloved son to become a sacrifice for them. So it echoes here so loudly to have only occurred one other time at the baptism of Jesus. Where the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so this owner says, I will send my beloved son. But yet, what happens to this beloved son? The tenants see him. And they say, this is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. This is one of those parts of the passage that always confuses me, that always confused me, that I never did to really dig into. Why would they think if they kill the heir, that they will then get the inheritance? What is going on here? According to both Chad Bird and William Hendrickson and other commentators, when they see the sun coming... The tenants are assuming that the father has died, that the father is no more, that the original owner of the vineyard has passed on, and therefore his one and only son is coming to collect what is due to him now, because he is now the owner of the vineyard. And when they see him, and assuming that the father has died, that the original owner has died, and that here is the one who now owns it, if we kill him, then there's no one else to inherit. 
Then those who are working the land become the owners of the land, according to many ancient customs, when there is no one else to inherit. And so these tenants in their wickedness see the son coming, assume that the father has died, that the original owner is dead. And so they leap upon him. They cast him out of the vineyard and they put him to death so that they can hopefully get ownership of the land. But they jump the gun here. They react too violently. They go too far finally and they kill the son while yet the owner lives. And so Jesus poses that question about this beloved yet rejected son. He poses a question of what will this owner now do? The owner is still alive. The tenants believed he might be dead. And now they have killed the son. They have killed the beloved son. What is the owner to do? And Jesus says this re that this owner will come and destroy those tenants for rejecting the beloved son. And he will give the vineyard to others. And the people react, surely not. Heaven forbid, we might say. Heaven forbid that this would happen. Heaven forbid that these tenants would be so wicked that they would not give what is rightfully to the owners, to the owner. Heaven forbid that they would kill the son. Heaven forbid that the owner would come and destroy these tenants. But that is what Jesus says will happen. The owner will come and remove the tenants and give it to others. He will come and lay waste to those who rejected the beloved son, to those who rejected the commitment of serving and honoring him. And when the people responded this way, Jesus now speaks of the rejected stone. And it says in verse 17, But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But he looked directly at them. He's staring down at them. He's staring directly ahead at each of these individual scribes and Pharisees and at the people, and he's making eye contact with them. That's what that means when it says he looked directly at them, that he is homing in on them. It's the same word that is said of when Jesus looked down at Peter after he denied him, and it says he looked directly at him, that Jesus makes eye contact with Peter at the height of his denials. And here he looks in the same way and bores into their souls and looks at them and says, what is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected? has become the cornerstone. There's a wonderful little wordplay occurring here if you look at it from Hebrew and Aramaic. There's a pun here that Jesus plays with. The stone and the sun. The sun and the stone. In Hebrew, those two words are extremely close together in how they sound. Sun is ben and stone is eben. And throughout the Old Testament, stones are getting used to refer to the sons of Israel. At morning prayer, we just read from Exodus 39 about the vestige, the clothing that the high priest would wear. And of course, he has his breastplate with all the different stones on it. And it constantly keeps going back to those stones and talking about them representing the sons of Israel. That the names of the sons of Israel would be written on those stones. That even Moses himself... It's doing a wordplay there with the Ben and Eben, Eben and Ben, stone and sun, sun and stone. And so for the beloved yet rejected son, Jesus shifts directions and goes to the rejected stone, playing with those words, playing with their ears a little bit. 
Because that's what a good rabbi will do. He'll find words that sound alike and use it to connect points and ideas. And so the rejected son becomes the rejected stone. And what happens to that rejected stone? It becomes the very cornerstone. It becomes the foundation stone or possibly the capstone. Because that word could mean either. It can mean the foundation upon which everything else is built. Or it could be that there's been a building built up. And they come to discover that there's a stone, a spot that they can't find any stone to fit. And they find this one rejected stone that they said they couldn't use. And they realize that it is the perfect fit that will bind everything together. That will become the focal point of this new building, of this archway even. And that it holds it all together and keeps it from collapsing. It becomes the most important and central stone in the building, and that is what the rejected stone is. That is what the rejected son is. The most important and central one in the story, in the history of all things. As the son is building up a new body, as he is building up a new temple that flows out of himself as the foundation, and he becomes the capstone of this temple. He is the one who unites all of this new temple together, all of us who have been baptized and brought to faith, all of us who come in to worship are united to Christ and part of his temple. And he is the capstone that we all look toward, the focal point of all, the most important one that we look to. And that is the stone that the leaders had rejected. That is the stone that the builders rejected. And Jesus warns these Pharisees, everyone who falls on that stone will be crushed. They'll be broken to pieces. They'll be pulverized and shattered by this stone because of their rejection. And the chief priests and the scribes, they understood this was about them. In a way, they're a little bit brighter than the disciples, I think. So often we hear the disciples being like, well, what does your parable mean, Jesus? And here the scribes and the Pharisees, they get it right away. The chief priests, they all realize He's talking about us. We're the tenants. We're the ones who are supposed to be giving to God what is rightfully His, and somehow we haven't. He's accusing us of breaking the law. He's accusing us of not giving to God that which is rightfully His. And so they want to destroy Jesus for accusing them of grave sin. But that is the very act that will lead to their destruction. That for them to try to destroy Jesus is for them to even more thoroughly reject the Son and reject the stone that will make Him become that perfect capstone, that perfect cornerstone. For through that rejection, through that death, He will be raised to new life and build a new temple. He will create a new Israel out of the old. He will draw many from the old Israel to Himself and will bring others who have never been part of Israel into the community of Israel, into the new temple, into the new body and the new people of God. Because one group will reject, another group will gladly receive and be bound up together. Thank goodness we aren't like those Jews, right? Those ones who didn't give to God what was owed to Him. And yet we make that very same mistake if we think that we are better than these Jewish leaders. Now just as those Jewish leaders we're committed to God through their circumcisions, through the handing down of the law, through the commitment to the law. Their whole selves were committed to God through that. And we likewise are committed to the Father. We have been bound up by Him. He has placed His name upon each and every one of us. 
God has placed the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit upon all of us who have been baptized. And thus he has laid claim to us and made us his own. And thus all of who we are are to be given over to God. All of who we are to be committed to obedience or to be committed in a lead and aligned with God's will. Paul is quick to remind us in Romans 11 that yes, in the olive tree that is Israel, there have been branches ripped off that were unbelieving Israel. And believing Gentiles have been grafted onto this wild, onto this tree, onto this beautiful tree of God that he has created. From wild plants they didn't belong, but yet God grafted them on and made them a part of that tree. But he warns for them not to be conceited at their place now. He warns them and says, you too can be cut off just as easily. You too can be removed if you act impenitently. If you refuse to give to God the glory that his, his due, if you refuse to honor him, he will come and strip you off as he had done Israel before him. So walk carefully. Walk and hear what the Lord is telling us. Walk and receive from him who he truly is. Then in him making us his own, we owe all to him. We will cut ourselves off from his kindness if we don't see that. We will cut ourselves off from the opportunity to experience and know and receive the kindness of the Father, which is the very kindness that leads us to a deeper repentance, to a deeper turning. As we strive and struggle and lead lives that are unrepentant, we reject his grace. We may think, well, I've received his grace at one point or another. What of this little sin? That's the same thing that the Pharisees were saying. That's the same thing the chief priests were saying. We've received his grace. We've received his covenant. We're good. We can live and go and do what we want. We're the children of Abraham. It doesn't matter what we do now. We can be hard-hearted toward the Father. We can be hard-hearted toward others. We can ignore the law. But it is a rejection of the Father and His grace. It is a rejected, rejection of the one who has graciously received us and laid a path before us so that we can follow that path to be ever closer, that path of confession and repentance, of faith and baptism, of life and salvation, of redemption and restoration and transformation from the Father. We can follow that path and know Him more deeply. But it takes us seeing our sin for what it is. It takes us seeing that we are these tenant farmers who are refusing to give to the Lord what is due to Him, what is owed to Him, which is our very selves. But as we're reminded in Isaiah 43 today, God made a path through the sea. He made a way to redeem His people. He made a way for His people to return to Him, and that way is through that rejected and beloved Son. He gave us his beloved son to stand in our place. To receive the due penalty for our refusal to serve, for our refusal to follow, for our refusal to simply walk on the path that God sets before us. And so as we come near the end of Lent, ever nearer, ever closer, may we not make a presumption upon God's grace. Yes, his grace is real. It is for us but it's a grace that will change us and transform us. As we live in this time of Lent and in this time of grace, this season of grace, 
To live in our old lives is to return to our sinful ways. It is to reject the kindness of God. This is a stern warning and a reminder for us today. We can't be trivial. We can't just brush it off. We can't loaf off back to sin after hearing about this. We are called to return to the Lord. We are called to receive His grace. We are called to reject our sinful lives. We are called to reject our sinful selves. We are called to confess that sinfulness within. We are called to return. It's too easy to flirt with the sin around us. So as Yahweh told Cain, sin is crouching at your door and ready to devour you. Sin is waiting to lay hold of us. But we undo its power when we confess it, when we confess our wrongdoings, when we confess our brokenness, when we confess our wickedness, that we are the tenants who refuse to give the owner his right deserts. We are restored and we are transformed. We become the righteous people that God desires us to be by walking this path of repentance and confession. When we return to the Son, we can kiss Him and pay Him homage. We can pay Him respect. We can pay Him reverence as we confess our sins. Confess our waywardness and return to grace this day. Receive His restoration and receive His transformation that we would be renewed. And so this beloved but yet rejected Son is calling us today as his people, as his church, to confess and to return to him, to turn from our wickedness and to turn to his grace, that we would become part of that temple that he is the capstone of, that while he was rejected and we have rejected him, we can receive him anew and we can walk this path of confession and repentance as we move ever forward through Lent. So may the blessings of God Almighty and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with us always. Amen. Amen.